Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Like a lot of music fans, I am fascinated by what goes on in the kitchen. That is to say, the recording studio. How is music made and recorded? Who's responsible for doing what? You may have wondered what a producer does, or what's the difference between a producer and an engineer. How have things changed over the decades when it comes to recording technology? And what's the difference between the attitude towards recording music back in the day versus what's happening now? The only way to get proper answers to these questions is to call in an expert. And I found Chris Burkett, a producer, engineer, musician, and songwriter who has seen things evolve over a number of decades. So, let's get into some studio stories. This is the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Welcome again. I'm Alan Cross, and this is a program all about how records are made, specifically some of the technical expertise that's required to make the magic happen. This is where Chris Burkett comes in. Over the years, he's worked on records that have sold tens of millions of copies. Talking Heads, The Pogues, Sinead O'Connor, Bob Geldof, Quincy Jones, Buffy St. Marie, Sting, Peter Gabriel, and many others. Before we get into a tutorial about what goes on in a recording studio, let's go through Chris's career, just so we know who's going to be doing the talking. How did he get into this racket? Uh, Tony Visconti is, uh, as you probably know, David Bowie's producer, um, Mark Bolan, and a lot of other great people. So I signed a deal with Tony for a couple of albums, and my band was called Omaha Sheriff. And uh, that was Tony became my mentor while I was in the studio. I, I was constantly asking him questions because I had a, this electronics degree, so I was interested in, you know, buttons and gadgets. Right. Uh, so um, I had uh, I asked him everything. I was annoying the hell out of him, you know. And and but I learned how to make records by watching Tony. So he, he said once in a quote. Uh, uh, Chris Burkhead, uh, I taught him everything he knows, but not everything I know. <laughs> <laughs> so what studios would you have been working in? Uh, well, at that time, I was working in uh, Tony's uh, kind of, you could call it a home studio in Shepherd's Bush. And then he opened Good Earth Records, and that was based in Soho. And then, um, you know, it's, uh, and then I kind of lost contact with him for a bit. I, I ended up going to work for John Congress. You may remember a hit record. From South Africa, yeah. Yeah. yeah he's he's the, uh, the father of the... Uh, of, of, uh, the band Congress. Yeah, of all the yeah. guys. In the, yeah. Well, I knew all those kids when they were like knee-high to a grasshopper, you know. So uh, I used to, you know, muck around with them. But uh, uh, John, we recorded our first Omaha Sheriff album. Some of the tracking was done at Tapestry Studios, which is John's studio. In South Africa? No, no, in John uh, John Congress's studio in London. Okay. He's from South Africa. He came over with Mutt Lang and a lot of other people, and they and they you know cleaned up in the music business. You know, they did really well. Clive Calder, from, who started Jive Records, I was became the in-house engineer for uh, uh, Tapestry Studios. I phoned up John. I'd left the band Omaha Sheriff, and I had no, I was living in Devon and milking cows for a living. And uh, I said, "Can you get me some sessions, John?" Because I I knew him. And he said, "Well, I can't get you enough to for you to survive in London, but I I know you got an electronics degree. Would you like to come and design and build my new studio?" So I built built it. And then once the studio was made, he said, "Well, I don't have an engineer. Could you? Would you mind doing it?" And I'd never done tape handling. My first recording. Uh, we had a big horn section came in. Uh, I think it's for Dixie's Midnight Runners or something. I did that record, uh, Gino, 
and uh, I recorded the horns and I played it back off the 24 track 2 inch tape and I thought this sounds really woolly and I realised I put the tape on back to front (laughs) (laughs) nobody told me you know I just had to learn I just blood sweat and tears for months I I lost tons of weight but I carried on uh, working there and then I John had tons of money uh, he was an inherited wealth his mum owned a chain of hotels in South Africa so he he would always buy the latest gadget so he bought uh, the Fairlight which was um, it's an Australian machine it was the first sampling machine it was monophonic sampler and I think it had what 20k of memory yeah it's really it's all on floppy disks you know those big old floppy disks they used to do and uh, so that's how I got to program the drums on Pyromania so who are some of the artists that you work for or work with over the years oh god the list is extremely long um uh i guess well the first hit record i was involved in was gino by dexie's midnight runners and i worked with the producer of that record was pete wingfield and i did a lot of records with him i worked with the Kane gang and all kinds of people um I wrote a couple of hits too, so as a as a songwriter, because I was all the time I've been in the studio making records. I'm always writing songs, and they kind of quite quite often sit on the back shelf. But uh, uh, I wrote a song called Aphrodisiac, which is a big, huge club hit in England, and everybody remixed it. is a, a massive, and that was the first song to use uh, African samples. It's way way before anybody else did it. So I was kind of uh, really uh, into technology. Well, I still am, but I'm always looking at the latest way of making something interesting. Um, of course Sinead and then I met Buffy St. Marie in 1991 and uh, I made her comeback album Coincidence and Likely Stories and uh, she'd been out of the business for 15 years she was blacklisted by the Nixon administration for writing the, you know uh, well, songs about truth <laughs> that's all I can say <laughs> but uh, she, uh, she's been uh, my friend ever since she lives in Hawaii and I've been over there like numerous times to make the last five albums the last one was Medicine Songs which just came out on True North Records and um, uh, I did uh, some production work for Bob Geldof who's quite well known who was at the time uh, my 16 year old daughter at the time sang on um, one of his records which is a great opportunity for her um, and uh, uh, God, it's Tony, um, Thomas Dolby I did an album called The Golden Age of Wireless uh, of course the, the Def Leppard thing I mentioned earlier that uh, was a drum program, programming thing Steve Earle I did some work on uh, Copperhead Road I guess I guess if you're in the business for a long time, you begin to forget who, all the jobs that you've had over the years. Well, there's just so many. I, it's it's uh, if you go to my website, can I say that? Sure. My website was is Chris Burkett Music I'm a proud owner of, owner of a Canadian website, and uh, uh, that site has a bio and it's it's a, it's a long list of you know I work, I work with the Talking Heads and you know a lot of really well known. I want to use you you as a resource for talking about what a producer, what an engineer, and what a, I guess, programmer does in the studio. So a lot of people are confused because producer in movies means one thing mm. and producers in the music industry mean another. So what does a music producer do? I see a producer's role as um, a liaison between the artist and the record company. In other words, a liaison between creative expression and financial uh, ne- needs. You know, that in other words, we have to communicate with the like. We have to come, make sure that the the project we're working on is relates to something that can be played on the radio 
and can be sold uh, and that's very difficult artists don't think like that so an artist uh, needs a producer as a, as a midway person in between the artist and the business so um, it's but it's also a very it's a very artistic job in itself. Uh, I'm a multi-instrumentalist, so I had to learn piano, bass, drums, and had to learn to play everything so that I could communicate with the musicians that were making the records in, in, the, in the right way. Because I would imagine you can't necessarily explain to a musician what you want or what the song needs in words. You have to show them on the instrument itself very often uh, it might be you know it might be a song in you know, a minor and you've got a, it's a kind of groove you know and you'd have to sort of show them how that groove went rather than write it on a score or something you know it's uh, it's very um, um, music is very for me it's a it's a kind of gift you know it's, it's, I, I look at music as kind of energy from another place coming through us you know like I, I work with Sting and Peter Gabriel and a lot of really well-known people and they the, every one of them has admitted that they don't write their songs they they come through them so we're kind of vehicles so the producer's job is just to, is to be a vehicle for the overall picture that if you like the matrix of what's what's going to happen and how it's going to work to helping them interpret what's going through their heads yeah exactly and you, and you have to have enormous patience you know I've I've worked with people who I, I, I've worked with bands who have been signed to a big deal uh, and they're and and they're the, the bee's knees you know at that time and uh, the the guitarist would be struggling with a, a riff and, and I could you know because I've got years of experience playing guitar I could do it in like 10 seconds but you can't because it had, the artist has to it's kind of a you know prestige and an ego, also an ego thing. The artist has to play their part, even if they can't do it. So, you know, you could do the part ten times better, and it work, and it'd be done. You have to sit there sometimes for hours. I, I worked um, worked with this band, uh, Buena Vista Social Club. I did a record with them, uh, the, the one, the second album, down in my uh, studio in the south of France. And we took uh, the trumpet player came in, and we we took two hundred and fifty takes of this trumpet solo. You know. And, and then I had to edit, edit it all together. It's very frustrating, it's, but but it's a labour of love because you know I love music and I think it's uh, I'm very fortunate that I'm able to make a living and something I love doing, which is kind of rare. So days. you kind of have to be a coach. You have to be a psychologist. You have to be a teacher. Uh, you have to be a lion tamer. Yeah, lion tamer is good. Yeah, <laughs> uh, psychology is definitely a big big part of it. Yeah, you have to. Uh, I. I'm very, um, when I'm working with an artist, I don't get in the way of the creative process. That's why I get on so well with Buffy St. Marie, because you, a lot of, I see a lot of producers, they're putting their own agenda on the the thing. It's like, it's my way or the highway, you know. I I let an artist uh, manifest. I don't let technology get in the way. You know, for example, I've, I've seen some producers that are, put out all different mics for singer and then crucify the person because they're like they're going to sing the song like 20 30 times before they've got the sound right and then they're exhausted I say, let's do the take and they're exhausted i never do that i just put up my go-to favorite mic which is an akg 414 bus i've used it on steve earl sinead o'connor buffy st marie alison moyer they've all sung in that that mic it sounds great don't have to mess around trying all different mics and then i just i don't even need cue it i just put it straight onto if they want something reverb or something brighter i give them a little bit of monitor eq but i don't touch the sound i just capture it and the reason i do that because i want to capture performance like 
like nothing compares to you which she probably knows Sinead's song that was a one take vocal if I hadn't been wait 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 she sang that all the way through one take one take and then she said I want to do a double track now so she went straight back in double tracked it perfectly and if I hadn't been ready just if I was been futzing around you know like with the mic and let's get this sound let's get that sound it wouldn't have happened so the, a lot of the best records I've made have actually been made to capturing the, the performance that's coming out at the time. I don't even tell people I'm recording. Here's another studio story from producer Chris Burkett. Let, let's talk about some of the things that you did with some of these artists. So with, um, you were talking earlier about using a Fairlight, this gigantic monster of a sampler with a monitor and a waveform display using a light pen and That's right, yeah. 20K of memory. What did you... And these things were like thirty or $35,000. Oh, it was more than that. It was uh, the one that we had at Tapestry Studio was cost 60,000 pounds. Wow. Which is translate to you know almost twice in dollars, right? Right. Uh, well, it was... Uh, it was the, the early days before MIDI you know what MIDI is musical Midi instrument inter- digital interface, interface right yeah. uh, so in the early early days it was all it's called music composition language uh, so you had to it was a mono machine so you can only get one sound in it at a time you had to write a whole code for to identify the sound and how long the sound would play and where it played so it's like you'd write if you if your kick drum was you called it A1 because it, it identified the sound on the on the disc, uh, you'd say A one twenty four. If, if you divide your bar, you're looking at four four, and you divide your bar into uh, say uh, forty eight. Say the, the kick drum, if it's a four four thing, be on one and you know twelve and twenty four, so, so on. So you have to tell that number, and it's all in brackets, and it's it's oh like H, it's like HTML, right? So it took forever to get sounds in there, and, uh, and then of course um, I was working with Mutt Langer, who's produced uh, Def Leppard so he came down with uh, they're doing an album called Pyromania and for some reason he didn't want uh, he wanted the latest technology on the drums so he spent ages like getting these wicked snare sounds and kick sounds in his in the studio right to get them to sound really big and everything and so the drummer gave me his uh, tapes of him what he wanted to play on the re- demos and uh, I had to write all that stuff out in score because it had to be converted to mathematical music language, so uh, you, there's no other way of doing it. You couldn't. It's not like today. It's a piece of cake. You just get a keypad or a, pad, a drum pad, and you hit the note where you want it to happen, right? And then you quantize it or whatever if you're not in time. But then you had to type every single event had to be typed in, and it was instrument by instrument. Well, no wonder that album cost something like three million dollars to make. Oh God, is uh, I tell you, I tell you, we spent six weeks. Uh, pr- in the program the drums I, was, I did the drum programming on my own he just gave me the demos and I just sat there for you know days and days and days and wrote it all into the Fairlight and saved it all and then Mutt came in and we were going through every sound with against the click like the hi-hat and he's he's you know he's meticulous He we would listen literally to a hi-hat against the click for like half a day like it's a bit ahead it's a bit behind so then that when he was happy the hi-hat went down and then the kick drum and then so on oh god and then uh, the funny thing is about that album is um, we spent like over six weeks getting the drums down and then he went off for a few months and 
probably a bit more. And he phoned me later and said, oh, Chris, uh, we've got to do the drums again. I said, oh, no, why? He said, well, I, I'm on my third 24 track. We've worn out three tapes doing all the, the guitars and the vocals. And they, tra- it, they transfer. It wasn't digital in those days. It was analog, right? They transferred 24 track onto a new new one because it was getting thin. The tape was wearing out. And then that had happened three times. And he said, "I want first generation drums." Luckily, I saved all the programs on these big floppy disks, you know. So it wasn't. I didn't have to put it all in again. But we had to record it all again. So that's what partly why the album cost so much. <laughs> <laughs> More from producer, engineer, and songwriter Chris Burkett about what sorts of things go on in a recording studio right after this. This episode is another Studio Stories program where we go behind the scenes to see and hear how music is made. And my guest this time is Chris Burkett, who has been in the game for decades as a musician, a songwriter, a producer, and an engineer. Let's pick it up there. So we talked about what a producer does. What does an engineer do? Uh, an engineer, they're, they're the kind of the, the unsung heroes of music, in my opinion. Um, I spent years engineering, and I was a creative musical engineer, which is so I was very sought after. I was, I was probably the, the go-to person in the 80s in London. Everybody was asking me to do things. Uh, the, an engineer is, is, uh, is responsible for the technical aspect, in other words, to get the, the sound from the source, which could be a voice, drums or bass or whatever, onto a recorded medium and to make it sound as good as possible. And then once that's all been put onto a multi-track system of some sort, and nowadays it's Pro Tools and there's no limit to tracks, but when I was doing this stuff, it was two-inch tape. You, had, you only had 24 tracks and one of them had a code on it to drive another machine, so you, you could only use 23 tracks. So the, the idea is to put the... Uh, get all that stuff on the 24 track and then when when the recording is finished uh, when the arrangement's finished and the recording you play that back through to your mixer which could be anything you know an SSL or my favorite mixers a Neve Neve consoles I love the sound uh, and then you play that back through the, uh, the mixer and you back you do the mix you know you balance it and you add things you know you, you can you know add EQ and uh, reverb and stuff like that so so it's uh I've got a funny um, story about about that if you want to hear it. Yeah, cool. Um, I was working with a producer called Trevor Horn. He, he did. Um, oh, yeah, from the Buggles and yeah, yes, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Video yeah. killed the radio star. That guy, right? So he came down to, to Tapestry. We had a, we had a big uh, Steinway grand piano down there. And so John had the best of everything, you know, uh, unlimited budget. So. Uh, so this guy came in, this Greek guy, I think his name is Nick Pletus. He's a session, really top session uh, piano player. He came in to record. So I set up the mics on the Steinway. I, I used, I like to use um, a crosshair configuration. So it's almost like you put two mics in a X thing, roughly in the middle of the piano. So it's about, the, and the capsules are about the distance of your ears. So it's, it's the most natural piano sound because it's like putting your head in the piano. That's kind of what comes out. There's di- lots of different ways, but on that particular thing, I set it up. So anyway, I was, I always, as I told you earlier, I'm always in record, right? So I ran the 24-track tape. I had two channels in record. And while Nick was playing, I, I was tweaking the EQ, right? That's, making it a bit top or where's the sweet spot you know take the high, the high mids out or whatever I was fiddling around with the stereo EQ on the channels coming through a trident desk at the time so at the end of the take I wound the tape back I said 
okay Trevor I'm ready to record and he says oh that's that's the take and I was, I, saw, I was horrified I said well we can't use that I was, I was changing all the EQ I was you know I was fiddling with the sound while it was and he goes well that's your problem we're going out for dinner you fix it so so I had to <laughs> I had to bounce I had to bounce the two uh, tracks of piano to another two tracks and literally reverse everything I did but it taught me a really good lesson it taught me not to mess around with performance that's why I, I say I always take everything natural and don't just don't let technology interrupt the process you know engineers are also put in charge of figuring out how to get the perfect drum sound in the studio Chris has this story about Led Zeppelin's John Bonham well John Bonham is one of my favorite ever rock drummers he's a minimalist but it's very powerful and i asked him how he got his drum sound because their drum sounds on the zep records are wonderful and he said well i hate microphones so he said well, I, I don't let people put mics around my kit so the the producer has to put one mic in a room and they, have to, they use a good a, a nice room like a slate room or you know a stone room or John, stairwell. Or stairwell. So yeah. Somewhere with a nice natural sound. Yeah. And they just pick up the whole kit with one mic and just use, compress it a little bit and do some EQ. And that's, and that's the John Bonham drum sound. Okay, one of the most interesting stories uh, for the listeners, I think, might be... Um, uh, as I mentioned, I worked with Buffy St. Marie. When we did Coincidence and Likely Stories, she'd been out of the business. She'd been doing Sesame Street for 15 years. And um, anyway, I was the in-house producer for Ensign Records in London. That's the late Nigel Grange's company. Uh, so Nigel, uh, he, he signed Sinead O'Connor and Bob Geldof and all those people. So that's how I got to work with all these you know, great artists. So Nigel phoned me one day and said... Um, Hey Chris, uh, guess what? I've just signed a legend, and I said, "Oh, who's that?" And he said, "Buffy St. Marie." And I said, "Who's that?" I had, <laughs> I had no idea who she was. I was always in the studio, you know. I was—I was hardly ever had time to listen to what was going on. But anyway, she wasn't that well known in Europe. She's big in big in Canada. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so Buffy lived in Hawaii, and I lived. I, my studio was in London. So Buffy didn't like. Uh, traveling like right across the world it's 12 hours jet lag right and and trying to record and all that so we so we talked quite a bit I went to meet her in the office and we said how are we going to start the album and she said well I'm I've got a home studio and I've got all my keyboards there is there do you think there's a way we could send my keyboard MIDI files to you in London because they're low resolution it's not like audio it's just uh, you know it's like 50 50k max for a song right so uh so she had a, a boyfriend at the time was a tech guy, uh, Roger Jacobs. He was a, a tech guy. He's got a computer company in Hawaii. He's really smart. So he worked out how to get this MIDI stuff onto a company called CompuServe. I used to have a CompuServe <laughs> account. You had to have one of those uh, uh, dial-in modems. Yes, yeah, it. <laughs> and you paid. Yeah, and you paid by by the hour yeah. or by the minute for access to this walled garden sort of internet thing yeah yeah it's before the world wide web yeah. right? so uh, so roger managed to get her midi files onto the combi server and i managed to work out how to download them via combi server into my system in london so all i had to do is mirror her keyboard setup at that time she's using a proteus and you know d50 and all that sort of stuff you know dx7 all those classic 80s keyboards right uh so 
So she just sent me all those files, and then I, I got them, put them all into my my uh, Atari. I was using an Atari at the time, a sequencer, and that was, that was the first computer sequencer that was around. And uh, and then I played all their MIDI files into the keyboard, the same keyboard she had in my but in my studio, and recorded all that on the twenty twenty four track tape, and then. And then to do the vocals and everything else, I had to take a flight case full of like 15, 24 tracks, really heavy, uh, over to uh, Walter Becker's studio, Steely Dan's studio in Maui, because Buffy didn't have a 24-track machine, so we ended up doing the vocals and stuff there. But the, the album, interesting enough, the album was born on the web, and it's the first time anybody ever did that. So uh, Billboard magazine had a big article about it at the time. It's, it was, uh, you know, it's it the latest thing, you know. So that's and, now, we, and now it's how everybody does oh, things. Yeah, so, I mean, we, you know, so just, uh, we're sending MP3s. I do uh, virtual overdubs. I mean, Tony Visconti played on my last album, uh, and he's in New York, and I was in uh, France, and I just sent him an MP3, and then he played his bass on it and sent the full quality wave files back and synced it back in. It's done, you know. You don't have to be in the same room now. It's, 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 it's wonderful. I, you know, I, mean, I love technology for that. Here's an example of a song that was a big online collaboration. Cage the Elephant had a song they really, really liked but couldn't seem to finish. It had hung around the band for years without completion, and that was starting to get annoying. They toured with Beck and really admired his songwriting ability. So they said, hey, little help over here, and sent him some music files to his place in L.A. We transferred Dropbox, something like that, whatever, whatever from their studio in Nashville. And Beck, being the nice guy he is, sent the song back online with a couple of verses in about 24 hours. And that was it. It was done. And it appears on Cage the Elephant's 2019 album, Social Cues. It's called Night Runnin'. Cage the Elephant, getting a little online help from Beck with Night Running. Back with more of this Studio Stories episode in just a second. We're talking about working inside the recording studio with producer, engineer, and songwriter Chris Burkett. During our conversation, we inevitably fell into the debate about what's better, today's digital technology or old-school analog. And here's what he had to say using comedian Mel Brooks as an example. So Mel Brooks had a movie out called The History of the World. Yes, in the early 80s. Yeah, and another one called To Be or Not To Be. Yes. So I did a, I did a record with him for both of those movies, and they, they, and they made a, a video of it too. So, uh, so this, is, this is a very good example of analog versus digital. If anybody's got you know any qualms about this, I'm going to tell you this story because it'll put your mind at rest. Mel Brooks couldn't couldn't rap to save his life so I had to the way I got the the Hitler rap together was I gave up trying to get him in time with the music as impossible so I just said look well just just rap just do it you know don't think about music and I put him on a quarter inch tape and then so then I had to put uh, Chinagraph marks on in front of every word and then well you're, you're actually writing something on the tape that of course what he sang was not in time right uh, it's almost it's kind of almost the right tempo, but it wasn't in time. So, so what you do is you uh, you put the tape in. It's a Studer uh, B62 or something. You put the tape in pause, so analog tape, and then you go one, two, three, four, bang! You hit the button in time with the music, and then the the the, the line that Mel had had wrapped 
comes out come, and then you have to record it on a 24 track and then if it's late if it's out of time then you move the, you put a chinograph mark on the little white pencil you put yeah. that on the tape and then you move it a little bit to the left and then you do the same thing two three dang and then eventually you get it right so I had to do that with every line on that song and that, at the same time it's destructive recording it's not like Pro Tools where it's non-destructive you because you're recording over what you've done you're recording on a track so you have to get, you have to go one two three hit the play button and then jo- drop in right at the, after the last word on the 24 track right it's, it's horrendous and you know that took me ages to do and I, and, uh, and I just want to tell people out there now using Pro Tools and you know Ableton and uh, Logic and all that stuff it's you you really don't know how good you got it now because it's it was so difficult in those days working on that must have been uh, trying here's more from chris on the subject of digital versus analog well, let me ask you this question. Um, there are people like Lenny Kravitz and Jack White and a few others that insist on recording in analog. Do you, as somebody who has been in studios for thousands of hours, do you hear the difference between something recorded analog and something that's high-resolution digital? Actually, I, I hate to say it, but it does actually... I've uh, I got a friend in, in, this, in Toronto called Galen Weston. He's a guitar player. He invited me over to his place uh, last year, I think it was, to hear this album he'd done. And I went in this listening room, and he had this like really flashy hi-fi system. It was like it looked like a couple of pyramids, you know. And he played me um, his at the same mix, the same album on CD, mm-hmm. which is as you know digital, right? And then he played me the vinyl, and I can tell you, it was, it was a world of difference. The vinyl. Recording just filled the room, and the CD when he, when you played that it's, it just seemed much smaller, you know. So, so there's something about uh, te- technically I understand because uh, magnetic tape captures precisely the energy flow that you're putting into it. You know, all music's made of sine waves, right? Mm. On magnetic tape, it reproduces exactly by changing the energy of the little magnets in the tape. It reproduces exactly what you're putting into it. But digital technology, the, the, the wave has to be chopped up into segments. So you're not really getting a sine wave. You're getting like a step. A sine and wave and you're, you're getting 44,100 of those steps per second. second. I know, but, but they don't underestimate the human capacity of hearing. We, we, we may not be able to hear it, but we can feel it. We can feel a difference. So there is... There's something better about analog, but I, I can tell you from a producer's point of view, I, I always steer away from it. A, it's really expensive, and B, it's murder to edit. This, you know, unless you're doing, uh, if you're doing a live recording, I probably would use a- analog, yeah, uh, because it's all it's there, right? You're not going to be editing and tuning vocals and all that sort of stuff, uh, or even a live off the floor recording. If you've got like you've got an 18 musicians in the studio you know it's going to be great you're not going to be fiddling around with with kick drum timing and stuff right so great put that on analog it'll sound wonderful now jack white would agree back in 2003 the white stripes recorded much of their elephant album at a primitive analog studio in london england called toe rag it specialized in vintage gear of all sorts the only kind of equipment that could give jack the sound he was looking for and uh, 
Yeah, it worked out well. This was one of the songs recorded at Toe Rag. I think you know it. Here's more recording studio talk with producer Chris Burkett. Give me some albums that you think are wonderfully produced, some rock albums. Well, there's some stuff that you may not have heard. as as an artist um, from uh, L.A. He's called Yoav. Oh, from South Africa. Yeah. He's He's the guitar player who does all the loops. Yeah. He is excellent. Yeah. I I heard uh, my son work with him because my son's a remixer and and an electronic music guy and lives in London. He's he's been in the studio since he's five years old so he's like he, he shot way past me at the age of 12 and into in electronic music uh but uh yeah when i heard the uh, the yeah one of the yohav's albums i was very impressed because he's got a record called yellow bright or a song called yellow bright smile yeah which is ex- yeah good call yeah and uh rodriguez and gabriella have you heard any of their yes records? they are also very i don't know how they get those acoustic sounds where they're just awesome they just, just female male out. guitar player they play nothing but acoustic <clears throat> guitars yeah, yeah. almost exclusively instrumental they are absolute uh, mm. monsters at oh, their craft it, it, oh it's just uh, she has an unbelievable rhythm i just love the way she plays the rhythm shots rodrigo e gabriella are very very good here's a sample from their 2014 album nine dead alive this is called Soundmaker. Take it from me, that sounds fantastic from an original source on a good stereo. The Soundmaker from Rodrigo y Gabriela. Back to Chris Burkett. Okay, how about a well-engineered album? Mm. Well, my records are... Check some of my records That <laughs> goes without saying. <laughs> They're impeccably engineered. Um, when we think about Alan Parsons and what he did with uh, Dark Side of the Moon... We think about Jeff Emmerich, um, what he did with the Beatles. Beatles. Yeah. Well, yeah, I'm glad you mentioned the Beatles because um, uh, I've kind of rediscovered them. Uh, you know, I bought all. The, I bought the first record I ever bought as a kid was Strawberry Fields, right? so, so I was always a fan. But uh, uh, if you listen to those um, those records now, it's just it's just unbelievable how they how good the, they sound. The separation. I mean, sometimes the drums are way over on the left and the vocals are on the right. You know, it's stuff things we wouldn't dream of doing now. But they, but they're really, really good. I mean, Jeff Emmerich was a genius, and coupled with George Martin, of course. Let's finish things up by getting Chris's opinion on the way music is produced today. There's. Uh, a lot of a lot of records now. Um, I don't want to sound like an old crud or something, but a lot of records now are uh, they're they're too um, precise and too too perfect. And yes. when something is too perfect, because of auto tune, because of quantizing, yeah. because of all the things that you can do to yeah. fix the slightest imperfection. Yeah, and it's the imperfection you see, which is a slight rushing ahead just before a drum fill that gives emotion it makes you it gives you excitement I talked to Danger Mouse you know great producer and he also plays drums but when he plays there's a drag yeah it's just a slight little drag that gives the that that some 
producers or engineers would just like, no, 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 we got to lock it to the beat. Yeah. And totally that would ruin right. it. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's precisely. It's um, it, it's it's a diff- uh, For me, it's um, a lot of music today is about sound design. Now, sound design is very impressive on an intellectual level. You can sit there and listen to something. And say, wow, you know, how did they do that? You know, uh, but it doesn't actually affect the emotions. It's a different. It doesn't sit in. It doesn't enter inside. Here's what I was talking about. Danger Mouse got together with the Shins James Mercer in 2009 to release a self-titled record. Listen to this single called The High Road. Danger Mouse is playing drums here. And listen to how he drags ever so slightly behind the beat. And that's what gives the song that crucial vibe. It's incorrect. It's wrong. It's not quantized perfectly. But that's the point. See what I mean about the drag on the drums giving the song that special feeling? After listening to that, Chris and I got into this. A lot of pop songs, you know, it's it's perfect. They're pitch perfect. You know, mm-hmm. the harmonies are perfect. The, the timing is perfect. The drums are... And it just feels... And again, I don't want to sound like, you know, I'm telling you to get off my lawn as a, you know, some old man, but but sometimes it's the imperfections in the performance that make it more beautiful. Yeah, exactly. And, and on a philosophical level, if something is perfect then it's actually dead it's no there's nowhere to go right so you know perfection is uh, the it's the reaching for perfection which helps us to evolve and it's the same with music we're, we're reaching for, for the best thing we can do it's an evolutionary process as long as we don't <laughs> kill it you know by by ironing it all out so it's just it's just not interesting anymore so there's it, a it's a playoff there somewhere it's you know I, I personally don't like to put out of tune vocals on records so I use I use a program called Melodyne, um, which is uh, the most transparent tuning program I've I've ever discovered. It's much better than like AutoTune. Uh, you know, Antares make the interesting uh, called AutoTune. But like on Buffy's album, for example, now Buffy's a really good singer. She's you know she's kind of good pitch and everything, but she's human, right? So occasionally something's going to be out. So what I do with her, I, I used to I put the whole vocal into into uh, Melodyne but I don't I don't tune it and I just, if there's one note that's just creeping a little bit above and, and and it's irritating her I'll just pull it down that note and I'll leave everything else totally natural and if you look at a vocal in Melodyne you'll see that nobody's really perfect it's all every note is just a bit above mm. and just a bit below the perfect pitch so you don't want to be hammering it out into the perfect pitch because then it's going to sound like a machine right like, yeah. a, like a musical instrument not a voice anymore and of course you've got the blue notes you know when you're halfway between a minor and a major what are you going to do about that you know you can't do this you know it's an inherent part of uh, the tension of uh, blues music because you know, we only use a 12 note scale but blues has a, that 13th thing there too you know yeah, that that space between the notes, minor and major. Yeah, it's not quite major and not quite minor. Yeah, it's yeah. stuff like that. Which and they're, and they're in India. I do a lot of world music, so Indian music they use thirty-two notes, and to us it sounds out of tune, but to them it, it, it you know it feeds them, gives them uh, excitement. Well, that was instructive. Thanks to producer, engineer, and musician Chris Burkett for taking us inside the recording studio for some great stories about how music is actually made. If you want to learn more about Chris, and he is making a lot of his own music these days, he can be found at chrisburkettmusic.ca. And you spell Burkett B-I-R-K-E-T-T, chrisburkettmusic.ca. If you want to find me online, 
There are all kinds of ongoing history podcasts available through Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and everywhere else that offers on-demand audio. There's my website, which is a ajournalofmusicalthings.com. It's updated every day with music news and information and recommendations. I also do Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. All email can go to alan at alancross.ca. Thanks to Adam for help with recording the interview. And all other technical production is the domain of Rob Johnston. Talk to you next time. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts. 